Dot.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Now the story of a superhero team who caused a lot of damage and the one victim who had no choice but to tear them all apart. It's Captain America Civil War. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we're here to talk about the war between the states. Nah, at least the war between the heroes. Yeah, for real. This is one of those movies that, like, as a comic book fan, I was sitting on the sidelines going, are they going to do it? Are they really going to do it? And there was this whole big fake out where they were like, oh, the third Captain America movie is going to be The Serpent Crown. I was just going to bring that up. And then the entire audience at the Comic-Con where they announced it kind of goes like, oh, oh is all right, okay. okay. And then the next thing you know, they're all of a sudden like, Nah, okay. It's Civil War! And the whole crowd went nuts, and I was sitting there going, maybe this one will come out on time, because the comic book version was plagued with delays. Delays that ultimately shaped the Marvel Universe the way we understand it and the way we know it. But, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Civil War, Captain America, the Captain America movie that is in no way a Captain America movie. No, it's really not. And the weird part about that is the people who were making it still did seem to think that it was a Captain America movie. Joe Russo referred to it as the second part of The Winter Soldier. The writers Marcus McFeely called it an amalgam of The First Avenger and The Winter Soldier. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? It's not a bad movie. But once again, and it seems throughout his entire franchise, Captain America sort of takes a back seat to what needs to be done in his film. They're not really Captain America movies. They're more like movies in which Captain America is the prism through which we focus. Completely agreed, because there is no way that this movie is more a Captain America movie than it is an Iron Man movie than it is a Scarlet Witch movie. There are three very distinct narratives running through the Avengers here. One of them is the very kind of Nat Cap Tony sort of thing. One of them is the Zemo storyline, and the other one is the Wanda story. Yeah, the only good thing about Zemo is he's pretty. I actually don't think that he is super pretty, though. He looks like Bruce McCulloch from Kids in the Hall. Like, and not that I'm saying I find Bruce McCulloch unattractive, but it really, like, it takes me out of the film. I just keep seeing him from Kids in the Hall as this character. Now, that would be a very different, very funny film in which I need Dave Foley to play Tony Stark in a really kind of like, no, Steve, why'd you do it? Because anybody here who has ever had the pleasure of watching news radio can say it is tremendous and he would kill it as Iron Man. Well, now I need to see Mark McKinney as Hawkeye or something. (laughs) I gotta fire these arrows. Oh my gosh, I need this movie. But- It's kind of funny that we're talking about comedies and sitcoms, because that's going to be a weird central focus of this episode, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. There's not too much more to talk about the setup on this film, so Kevo, I think it's time to dive into that BTS that we do so well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this film has a lot of really interesting BTS in terms of who was and wasn't going to be involved in this film at various points in time, as many people are famously aware We did not have the rights to Spider-Man when production of this film started. No, it was a huge deal because Spider-Man is such a central part of the original Civil War. Leaving him out would have felt strange, not that a number of the changes haven't been strange in and of itself in the MCU, but they make it work. However, Spider-Man really did lend a certain amount of Marvel magical credibility to this film. Mm. And without him, something really would have been missing from the greater picture of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it. Absolutely. In fact, a lot of people aren't even sure how the structure of the film would have worked without Spider-Man and Peter Parker. Anthony and Joey Russo and Marcus McFeely, they all seem to maintain that they had no intention of making this film without Spider-Man, but we know that that's literally not how Hollywood works. Can't seem to find any corroboration on this as a fact, but I know that there was speculation at the time that the Black Panther role had been increased to potentially play what would have been the Spider-Man role of being caught between Iron Man and Captain America, and once they got Spider-Man, that role was put back on Spider-Man without reducing Black Panther's role, which, thank goodness for that, because this is a great film for that character, too. I agree. In a lot of ways, I think that's part of the magic of this movie. It kind of got 
the annoying bits of Spider-Man and Black Panther out of the way, the sort of setup and the kind of generic Marvel-y superhero bits so that Homecoming and, of course, Black Panther could shine as films. There were rumors going around that even Charlie Cox's Daredevil from the Marvel Cinematic Universe Netflix branch was going to get called up to replace the Spider-Man role, as well as rumors about Carol being brought in, that poor character, my precious Carol. I'm wearing a Carol shirt right now, Mm. and it's like she just couldn't get a movie until March. I just can't wait another minute. Well, and Hope Van Dyne was at one point going to be in this movie. Kevin Feige said that himself, but much like Carol in Ultron, they didn't want to, quote-unquote, do a disservice to her by introducing her in an already cluttered team film, which... On the one hand, I do understand and I get, and it ended up with us getting the first ever Marvel film co-headlined by a female character for Wasp, which is great, but you know, it still would have been nice. It really is wild, though, to think about how dramatically films can change even while they are in process. Principal photography for Captain America Civil War began April 27th of 2015, which, by the way, was almost exactly four years before Endgame will be coming out. And screen testing for Peter Parker didn't start until May. So while the creators of this film claim that Spider-Man was never not going to be in this film, he wasn't cast until June. As we know, Tom Holland himself didn't get the news until it was leaked to the press. In fact, there was an NDA that was supposed to keep Spider-Man's involvement in Civil War secret until after the movie came out. But one of the homecoming writers, Jonathan M. Goldstein, leaked it by accident and that's how the world found out that spider-man was definitely going to be in the film in july of 2015 that's just bonkers to me it's like the carol cg in ultron where they were like oh well i guess we don't have a carol oh no it's just wanda 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 we'll just use those effects plates for wanda nobody will notice and you know no one especially did so to their credit as far as the bts on the people who made this movie goes unfortunately as i mentioned i think in winter soldier we're getting into a stretch of films where it's produced by a lot of the same people over and over again this has composer henry jackman carry over from Captain America the Winter Soldier. Unfortunately, I discovered something this week about the Winter Soldier that I wasn't able to put in for that episode. Henry Jackman has an assistant composer that he works with named Dominic Lewis, who contributed tracks to X-Men First Class, Wreck-It Ralph, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and Captain America the Winter Soldier. And that's the guy who does the score for the current DuckTales animated series on Disney XD which I think is just the coolest fucking thing, and it has an amazing score. It is a terrific show. It actually watches like an action-adventure sitcom, but animated, starring ducks, voiced by all of your favorite people. Not that we're trying to be like, you all have to go watch this, but I wouldn't be shocked if the next HTML was about the DuckTales cartoon. So definitely worth checking it out, and the score is amazing. And it's funny that you mentioned the fact that we described DuckTales as an adventure sitcom because that transitions me into the only other stuff I have to say in this BTS, which is it's uncanny the way the MCU is currently being steered by people who have produced some of the funniest things you have ever seen. I've mentioned before and now would like to go into slightly more detail about the fact that Anthony and Joey Russo are the directors for the pilots of Arrested Development community happy endings they've done a ton of work on these really popular comedies in fact that's the reason that the bluth stair car can be seen in the background of the airport battleground because they directed the freaking pilot they directed 14 episodes of that show total they directed seven happy endings and they directed 33 flipping episodes of community that's literally 30 percent of the episodes the only other person to direct as many is tristram shapiro who directed 24 yeah literally 50 percent of all the episodes of community are directed by three people and what's interesting is like when you think about a show like perhaps will and grace for a moment where every episode is directed by james burroughs to the point where he's kind of like the fifth cast member you don't even think about how the direction of a show can so heavily influence it as a writer i'm always so preoccupied with the words and i kind of forget that everything else that comes after the words is really important too so to hear that these guys who are so responsible for so much humor happy endings is one of my all-time favorite shows bar none it's really interesting 
And not only is that one of our favorite shows, they specifically directed some of our favorite episodes. The second season premiere, the episode where Megan Mullally guest stars as Casey Wilson's mother. That's one that we love to watch all the time. That Uh, is one of the best quote fodder episodes by far. There's an entire song number in there. Yeah, yeah. The season two Valentine's Day episode. That's another great one where it turns out that Alicia Cuthbert's grandmother was actually a prostitute in Chicago in the 1920s. And she doesn't realize it because she's she's a pretty little bird. She's God bless. But even specifically like landmark episodes of these shows, there's always money in the banana stand. That episode was directed by Anthony Russo, as was the first episode where Job says, I've made a huge mistake. Cooperative calligraphy from season two of Community, which is a prime example of bottle episodes that people frequently point to directed it by Anthony Russo. They even directed episodes as late as season five of Community. Joey Russo directed Childish Gambino's final episode of Community. Why can't I? Donald Glover. Jeez. I mean, you know, but I remember Childish Gambino. So. Don Glover is actually the person everybody wanted to play Miles Morales' ultimate Spider-Man. So that's kind of like a fun little full circle thing there. And I actually can't think of any better time to jump into the movie itself. Let's do it, Mr. Manager. Okay, so I need to be real, though. The fact that this movie opens on Mr. Misery himself, Uh. Bucky, the winter bummer, is so frustrating. I honestly feel like the most personality Bucky had was in the first movie, and since then, I just haven't cared. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. He doesn't start to develop a personality again until after he and Steve go on the run, after he was already captured, and even then, he's got about 20 minutes of personality in this film. I always say I root for the characters being happy, and Steve cares about him, so I care about Steve, but we're not given a ton to care about Bucky, though. And in that regard, it actually harkens to something you said while we were working on our notes for this film. Bucky's only real purpose is to facilitate other men's stories. Mm. In that way, Bucky's kind of coded female. Yeah, Bucky is treated very much like a female love interest in this film. I think if you switched Bucky's gender, people would be shocked if Steve and Bucky were not intended to be a romantic pairing. And you frequently see that with male relationships in film, where if you just switched the gender, people wouldn't question that they were romantic. I completely agree. I also think that there's a little too much focus on the background of Bucky in this film, considering the last movie was Winter Soldier, and we got absolutely no answers about Bucky in that movie. I don't even think that it's about Bucky's background so much as this one specific mission that is repeatedly referenced over and over again from 1991, which I love that we're seeing Marvel films go through time, especially considering Kevin Feige recently said of Captain Marvel taking place in 1995. There's no reason we can't start going back and doing old films. And from the old to the new, my God, I love the new Avengers. I definitely agree with that. You know, while we were watching this movie, you made a point about how you felt more during this opening battle in Lagos than you did in the opening battle for Age of Ultron. And I absolutely see where you're coming from. The battle at the opening of Age of Ultron, you know, we're told that it was their final battle together, and that sort of makes sense as to why it looks all, like, polished and clean and pretty and why it's so overdramatic. But this opening scene, it's really more just like an ordinary day on the job. They aren't finishing tracking down the last of the Hydra agents. You know, they're tracking down Rumlow after the Winter Soldier, but... He's just one of many bad guys that they will, or at least they believe, they will continue to face going forward. And one of the things that makes this movie a little bit different than the other movie is this is the first time we see this team in this formation fighting together. The other team, it's so hard to live up to the end of Avengers, and Age of Ultron kind of just couldn't. Mm. Here, these are not the Avengers Assemble Avengers. This is a different team of Avengers, kind of a blank slate in a lot of ways. And by putting it in a Cap movie, they kind of like snuck in that it's a totally different team of Avengers. And it was definitely nice getting to see Black Widow back in action after Age of Ultron. I think how action heavy uh, her character is in the opening scene here is a pretty clear response to her absence from Age of Ultron, which again, you know, pregnancy, not like it could be helped. And we would never want to see Nat miss a movie. So the fact that they were like, oh, we'll make it up to you guys here. 
I really appreciate that because she does have a lot of standout moments in this film. Not enough, but she does have a number of them. I do think the the award for MVP this movie has to go to Wanda, starting right here and going all the way to the end of the movie. Oh, absolutely. I think that she was already gunning for MVP from her first appearance in Age of Ultron. I, in retrospect, and even at the time, I very much loved her and was excited for the potential of that character. And she not only lives up to that potential, but expands it in this film. They also found an interesting way to make a battle compelling for this team. Captain America is a brilliant strategist and his heart is unstoppable. But Captain America isn't necessarily a powerhouse. Neither is Nat or Sam. They're all amazing fighters, all have incredible training, and they're all very good at what they do. But Sam has wings and Red Wing. Nat has Widow's Bites and Cap has a shield. Wanda can, like, blow up the universe. So it was really interesting that they managed to find a way to convince me that this battle was enough to keep Wanda busy. I also think that it was an interesting and clever idea to have the opening battle be a precursor for basically what the plot of the entire film is. Before Rumlow goes off, one of his henchmen says to him, where are you going to meet us? And he says, I'm not, because he fully plans on suicide bombing just to either take Cap down or make the Avengers look bad. And that's what the entire plot of the film is. How can we make the Avengers look bad to the world to try and take them down? That's actually a nod to the original Civil War comic, which opens with a team of superheroes failing to save the day and an explosion at an elementary school killing children. So it's really an interesting way to change that a little bit. On the subject of Rumlow, I'd been really annoyed because he seemed way too strong, way too quickly. And I was like, okay, since when can he kick a door like that? And then at some point he's like, no, you can't stop me now. Not anymore, little girl, to Black Widow. And I'm like, oh, at least they're implying he kind of got a power up at some point. Because otherwise he's just landing way too many good punches. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And on the subject of kids at school, unless you have more on Lagos, I guess we might as well just transition into Tony getting as much screen time by himself at the top of this film as the entire new Avengers team. And what a weird, private, personal moment to throw in everyone's face! Oh my god, I literally wrote down in all caps, this is a wildly personal moment for Tony to play out in front of an auditorium of students. Like, so inappropriate and weird... So much, you're going to hear it so many times this episode, how weird Tony Stark is in this movie. That's my biggest flaw with Civil War. I like a lot of this movie, but I don't understand what's going on in Tony Stark's head or where he's coming from at all. Yeah, he's clearly having a mental breakdown. I don't know if it's fallout from Sokovia, if it's that Pepper isn't here, and Pepper's not here because they just couldn't get Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, her contract had expired for the MCU, and they just hadn't renegotiated more films into her contract yet, and they just decided to lean into that breakup being part of Tony's characterization. I also don't love that he's just kind of, like, going backstage, and someone just gets to walk up to Like, this whole scene, like, all the Tony stuff feels off. And it's such a waste of Alfre Woodard for as much as I love her role as Black Mariah, well, most of the time, sometimes Black Mariah goes a little bit off the rails in Luke Cage, but, you know, I love anything Alfre Woodard does, except this weird little two-minute cameo. I feel like she is such an iconic actress. They could have gotten her for something so much bigger for the MCU, and instead she's this small moment that we are led to believe is the thing that sets Tony off the rails to become so super pro-registration. I just never feel why he would take that stance. I don't think that they did a good job of explaining or making us see why he would be that way. I think in the comics, they do a little bit better job, and I think they rely on bringing it over from the comics. But again, don't tell me that this is its own universe then. And if it had been a reaction to his actions in Ultron and him trying to make up for that, it would be one thing. But they literally don't mention more than maybe once that this could have to deal with his guilt from Ultron. They don't talk about that much other than the fact that just, you know, we cause constant messes and this is the responsible thing to do. Tony very much fucked up on his own in a big way last movie. And instead of using that to drive his characterization forward, they're just sort of being very nebulous. And I just didn't appreciate that for the film. And I think one of the reasons they're able to put it all on Tony in a way that feels super inorganic is because Hulk's not here. There's no banner to share half of the responsibility of creating Vision. 
So, well, of creating Ultron, which created Vision. Yeah. So, ultimately, we get all of this weird Tony stuff that leads us into the return of Thunderbolt Ross. And this weird little tie-everything-up package so that you understand the plot of the movie. And I have to say, Nico, who just watched Newsfront with Christine Everhart, did you hear one mention of Thunderbolt Ross being on the verge of retirement in this entire film? Uh, no. No, I definitely heard him say that he had a heart attack while playing golf, and it gave him an epiphany that was to continue to behave the same way he always has. Like, that really struck me. He starts that speech making it sound like he had this epiphany about how they need to be better to superheroes. But no, ultimately, he just wants to treat superheroes the same way that he'd been treating them. What the fuck was that moment even? I'm just glad he doesn't become the Red Hulk in this universe. Or the Rulk. Yeah, that would have really sucked. I also don't really love Rhodey. Basically, throughout this entire film, I understand that he is there to provide the military perspective and tow the military line, but he mostly just comes across as a dick and is repeatedly mean and rude to the other Avengers, to the point where I'm like, I don't think you should have ever qualified as an Avenger then. Yeah, he's unusually aggressive. He doesn't feel in character for who we understand Rhodey to be. It also makes me kind of wonder, was... Some of this something to do with, did he have more story in the canceled War Machine movie? Mm. What? Because there's a moment when Ross is talking about the devastation of New York and Rhodey turns around and looks at Steve. And I'm like, look at yourself, Rhodey. You had the War Machine suit by then. Where were you during the Battle of New York? Now, as a, you know, creative and somebody who understands films, they didn't have Don Cheadle for the movie. Okay, I get it. But then you need to think about that when you're writing these characters and you can't have Rhodey be annoyed about the Battle of New York. He never showed up. So, from some good guys behaving like bad guys to an actual bad guy, finally the bad guy of this movie shows up! Like 25 minutes in, which honestly sounds longer than it is when you consider the fact that this is a 2 hour and 27 minute movie. Now, I'm gonna go through going forward and pay attention to how much of that runtime is credits, But even with this one, it's only about 10 minutes. So this movie is still two hours and 15 minutes long. And we didn't get the villain until 25 minutes in. And I appreciate this version of Zemo. He's not my precious comic Zemo. Now, Zemo is always evil. You should never like Zemo. I have Zemo on this list of characters that if you cosplay Zemo, I think you worry me. And I don't... Yeah, there's basically no Captain America villain that's, like, sane to cosplay. So... Zemo in the comics leads a team called the Thunderbolts, no relation to Thunderbolt Ross, who are a team of supervillains who decide to become good guys in disguise to infiltrate the good guys while the Avengers are all missing. And ultimately, a bunch of them decide to stay good, but Zemo's still always crazy and evil. This Zemo is super toned down. Wait, so the Thunderbolts have nothing to do with Thunderbolt Ross, and Everett Ross, who's introduced in this film has nothing to do with Thunderbolt Ross. Just to be clear. That is correct. Good fucking lord. Okay. So, Zemo has, like, no personality, and he just sort of shows up and is vaguely evil. And, you know, I just don't like it. I, you know, especially because we don't find out until very late in the film that he worked for Sokovian Black Ops. This whole time, I'm like, who is this random guy who's just sad that his wife and kid died who is able to mastermind all of this crazy crap and, like, put on a fake mask that looks like Bucky and, like, torture Hydra agents. And then ultimately, I just don't really feel for his motivation. Yeah, a lot of sad things happen to a lot of people, but you, like, killed a lot of people on your way to take the Avengers down. You think your wife would be proud? Probably not. Probably not. And it's such a, like, a footnote in the film that we immediately go right back to the Avengers. Yeah, we cut back to the Avengers, and I love that we get a scene of Rhodey and Sam Wilson arguing over the Accords, because I do think it's really cool that the two high-ranking military officials we have in the Avengers are both black men, and that we are seeing them trade different perspectives on what the Accords would mean for them both as soldiers and as superheroes. Because both of them are in a unique position where they were friends with or befriended by somebody with abilities in the Avengers— and we're like, hey, here's some superpowers for you, basically. So they're both coming from very different perspectives. It's cool that they stick with the one who brung them. But at the same time, I do think it is a rare opportunity to see two black men 
both being heroic with different opinions. It's, it's a really nice touch in a franchise that we complained had next to no women and next mm. to no people of color for several films. Absolutely. I think for me, all of the registration, all like this whole storyline, part of why it falls short for me is I really don't like seeing superheroes being portrayed as second guessing themselves because like the US military causes devastation and I don't feel it second guesses itself with the same oversight that we are being told the Avengers need to have. So to see the military antagonizing a group that I think isn't any worse than they are, you know, I just really, I'm tired of liberal heroes being portrayed as the only ones that need to have a conscience. I don't find that fun in my superhero films. I don't feel, you know, I'm constantly told people don't want to see gay issues because they want an escape. I do too. And this is something that makes it harder for me to escape into it. Speaking of forced heterosexuality... Let's get to... Okay, I just need to go on record. I love Emily Van Camp. Oh, I, yeah. I love Revenge. Revenge is an amazing nightmare of a show. And I have to be real. I love Sharon Carter in this movie. I even love Sharon Carter in this movie. I just don't see any chemistry between her and Captain America whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. And it, it's creepy. Yeah, it's kind of like watching a hat try and kiss a plank of wood. It's... It's... Oh, my God. You know, especially because they make it very clear, you know, obviously we're up to the part with Peggy's funeral and them reuniting, and it's probably the first time they've seen each other in at least two years, and they're catching up, and, you know, I want to make something very clear for our listeners. I believe we have seen, on film, every single interaction between Steve Rogers and Sharon Carter, apart from the occasional awkward bumbling in the hallway when they were neighbors, and he didn't know that she was an agent. Other than that, there isn't a single moment that is hinted at or implied that we literally have not seen between them. I just cannot see any romantic chemistry between the two of them from that other than physically being attracted to a random heterosexual person that you see. And that's not really a love story. No, it's really not. Especially not when one of those characters is the niece of your former love interest and... Other than the fact that she has a really great speech here from the comics that's been reappropriated for her, it's... But that means that Steve had literally so little interest in this woman that he never looked at all into her to see that her aunt was Peggy Carter. I know she says she doesn't talk about the fact that that's her aunt because she wants to make it on her own. It's probably still in your file, though, and you still have the same last name. So it's not a huge secret, and Steve still didn't know it until you got up to speak at your great aunt's funeral. That's not normal, guys. You're not in love. Sorry. And from a funeral to a shocking death sequence, we finally get the introduction of T'Challa, the Black Panther, the guy who changed the course of the Marvel Cinematic Universe forever, a character whose movie really 100% changed the game the way Avengers Assemble did. This is huge. We get T'Challa and his father T'Chaka, and Nat's involved, and I like when Nat's in anything, so I like that Black Panther and Nat have a couple of emotional scenes together, especially early on. Yeah, me I, too. It really humanizes both of them to each other, and I appreciate that. But then, it is so many fucking explosions, way too fast. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny that within, literally within two minutes of introducing us to T'Challa and T'Chaka is when T'Chaka is taken down by Zemo. That is very quick after introducing the character and it really makes me wonder you know i think a lot while i'm watching these movies how invested would the audience be if it wasn't for the fact that these are pre-existing characters this is a guy that we barely know from a country we've heard mentioned once that bruce banner has apparently never heard of in his life and all of a sudden they're front and center at the drama of this film as audience members we're fully aware that we're looking at t'challa the black panther but within the context of the film itself, these characters have no idea that this guy is going to come out to be a superhero. And it's kind of rushed, to be really honest. I feel like T'Chaka deserved a better death sequence, and I feel like he deserved for his death to be more than just a plot point. Also, I gotta say, I love that a man whose nation is hiding untold wealth and technology says he's in favor of the Sokovia Accords and their mission of transparency. 
Yeah, that's something I really do appreciate that Black Panther addresses, and I can't wait to get to that movie. And that's such a great point. There's a lot of double standards hidden throughout this film. Cough, cough, Tony, Peter, we will get to that. We'll get to that. And that brings us to more Cap Bucky stuff. <laughs> God, I just get so tired of Bucky so quickly. So we get a bunch of Cap Bucky stuff, and it's just fight, 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 fight in the staircase. You know, it's funny. Turn to Nico, and I said, the fandom is way too obsessed with that scene of Bucky picking out plums. And he was like, what? No, I'm telling you, there are people who sob over Bucky just wanting to have a nice day picking out plums. And I'm like, you know, I feel bad for the guy too, but oh my god, what characterization are you basing this love on? There's about as much characterization of Bucky in these two films as there is romance between Steve and Sharon. I really agree. I just don't understand the Bucky stuff. Actually, that's not fair. There's more characterization to Bucky. Uh, There's more characterization to Bucky in the old days. Fair enough. And that's something that's really interesting. Bucky is another man out of time. Only Bucky hasn't had adjustment time. Bucky is just bewildered. I mean, the guy has such severe PTSD. He literally doesn't understand the world he's in. His brain's all broken. He's got tons of programming up there that he doesn't want. And I just feel like he would be better in custody. I feel really bad. But like Bucky is forgetting the fact that he's a weapon. He's a man who needs help. He's a man who literally needs psychiatric help. Bucky cannot do this on his own. And I'm glad that, you know, spoilers, obviously, where his story ends up at the end of this film is that he's getting help and we learn that he's gotten help from Wakanda. But that's not incorrect. He shouldn't just be running about. He should be getting help. The staircase fight is pretty incredible. And I actually, that's another thing where I wonder if it was an intentional parallel of what comes later, because a lot of the stairwell fight really reminded me of the scene at the end of the film where Bucky is trying to get away up whatever that thing is, like it's some sort of rocket shoot or something that Tony is chasing him up. So I really wondered if there was a purposeful parallel between those fights. There was also a moment where Steve's shield gets stuck in a wall, and I wondered if that was a purposeful nod to one of those accessories that you can buy, like wall mount, that it looks like Captain America's shield is stuck in your wall. I was like, that's perfect product placement. And from perfect product placement to one of the better fights of the film, Black Panther trying to get his hands on Winter Soldier is just fucking awesome. Yeah, 47 minutes and 47 seconds, we have the debut of Black Panther, only about 10 minutes after the character of T'Challa debuted himself, by the way. Great battle, really cool introduction to the hero, but like, also really fucking dumb because T'Challa exposes himself as Black Panther to the world and then we just sort of pretend that that didn't fully happen. I get what you mean. There is sort of a disconnect between this film and Black Panther at times and I think that's unfair to Black Panther. You know, one of the things is in a shared universe, you're kind of given what you're given. You have to accept this movie came before your movie and, you know, obviously Black Panther did a phenomenal job And here, there's just things I think are a little bit off. I do love that this movie does give us Everett Ross, who then is one of the characters that translates over to Black Panther. Mm. I think he's a lot of fun. But all in all, this is the point at which the movie takes the first big dip for me. You know, I think Steve starts to become a little bit unhinged in this film as well. At one point, he, like, throws a government official out of his car to steal it so that he can continue to chase after Bucky. And there's going to be a few points later in the film where I'm like, you're hitting that person way too hard, and I'm not on board with that. I also thought it was really funny to watch Black Panther fighting Falcon because then it's a cat versus a bird. (laughs) Uh, That's, I hadn't thought of it that way. So then Rhodey shows up and he puts them all under arrest with his nasty attitude. It's really a bummer because Rhodey is so much fun until this movie. All of a sudden, he's just a big bummer. Yeah, it's not until after he's mortally wounded and nearly dies that he starts to get some of his levity back, which, weird choice, but okay. So after they're arrested, we cut to more heterosexual romantic chemistry from out of nowhere, this time between a robot and a character who was only introduced a film ago. Hey, but okay, right, and you know, okay, well, uh, one second, okay, but at at, at least they're comic canon. Yes, that's fair. They're not just comic canon, they're like, like, I'm making a little heart with my hands, they're like super comic canon, and they're like super amazing, and I love them so much, and this is everything I wanted. (laughs) I'm seeing a lot of people complain about 
gay people looking for queer visibility and acting like we're taking things away from straight people. I don't have a problem with Vision and Wanda, even specifically. I actually love the pairing, and I think that they have really good chemistry. I think they've done a really good job of seeding and developing an important comic pairing with very little time. My point is just, you've got time. You do have time for these things. But I do love them together, and I love the way that they developed in this film. The weirdest part of this scene for me is when Wanda's like, I don't know what this is, but it's not paprika. What What was in that jar labeled paprika then? I don't know. It's vision spice. Yeah, not the point. I know. So everyone's taken into custody, and Black Panther just, like, spilling random shit about what Black Panther is, and that's fine. I was really most annoyed in this scene by Tony over the phone referring to Thunderbolt Ross as Sir. That is a very clear indication that Tony is being treated wildly out of character for this film, that he called a high-ranking military official Sir. I feel like we are seeing Tony really under stress. And then, like, when he says to Steve, oh, you and my dad knew each other, he only mentioned that, like, about a thousand times. You sound like a child, and I'm not here for your mommy and daddy issues this movie. I do think that it's important to note that Tony turns on Steve way faster than Steve turns on Tony. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, Steve's, like I said, also being kind of, I don't want to say weird, but the moment that he calls Wanda a kid kind of bothered me. I'm like, she's an adult woman, and I know that she's had problems, but that's really diminishing of her faculties. And especially considering everything she's been through, I wouldn't necessarily say they've been through the same things. But hey, you weren't born with your superpowers either, and you got them because you wanted to make a difference for your country too. There's a lot of parallels between himself and the Scarlet Witch, and that he kind of hand waves it is a little silly. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, on a different note, though, Bucky's little cell while he's locked up says D Deck 23. I'd like to believe in my little heart that that's a reference to D23, the official Disney fan club. It's probably not, but it's still going to make me laugh. It makes me laugh. I hope it's not actually like, yeah, this is product placement, but it sure makes me laugh. What doesn't make me laugh is how fucking I just, okay, I feel like. Sometimes in these movies, there's a little too much access to these heroes, the way Alfred Woodard's character gets to Tony immediately following his speech. And then here, I don't understand how Zemo just gets in. Yeah, you know, the guy that Zemo is impersonating, we later see dead in a bathtub, played, of course, by Joey Russo. And I don't think Joey Russo looks like the guy who plays Baron Zemo. I don't know how he got away with some of this crap. And I know it's a movie, and we're supposed to suspend disbelief to a certain point, but with how hardcore wild Thunderbolt Ross is about shit, and how much of an ass Everett Ross is about shit, I just find it really difficult to believe that Zemo walked his way into this situation so easily. We frequently see stuff like this fail for our heroes, but go perfectly well for our villains, and I just, I don't think it's, I don't think it's logical. And I know it's a trigger... And I know it's the plot of the film, but I'm really bothered by how quickly Bucky is just evil again for how little personality time he gets. Why did he spend all that time trying to smash open his cell instead of just going la 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 la, trying not to hear the trigger? Maybe that wouldn't have worked. I don't know, but he didn't try at all. Also, side note, the reason one of the trigger words is homecoming is in fact because of Spider-Man, by the way. Oh, that's adorable. Right? So, Bucky just starts wailing on everybody. It kind of bothers me how expertly Bucky can take down the Avengers by himself. Too many Avengers can take down the Avengers by themselves, and they should mostly be Thor, Hulk, Captain Marvel. But Bucky is just unstoppable somehow. If I had to guess, I would say it's probably because when he goes into his Winter Soldier state, he's literally just a weapon, and... The heroes that we see, you know, they have their awareness. They have a conscience holding them back. He literally has nothing but fight. And I'm at least grateful that we saw him take down multiple soldiers and Avengers. It took a helicopter crash caused by the unbelievably fit Captain America to actually knock him out of this headspace. I'd never found helicopters sexy before this, but goddamn watching Steve try and hold back that helicopter is one of those burned-in-my-mind images. Yeah, that's an hour and nine minutes if you're looking for a timestamp on that. <clears throat> anyway, there is something about the fact that we've seen a bit too many times already a single warrior be able to take down an entire superhero team. 
at a certain point, one of these people needed to fucking die earlier. If they're that easy to take down, there should have been more casualties among this team. Not to mention, it kind of makes the argument that they needed an entire second team of Avengers to take down the new Avengers when they're on the run seem kind of invalid because Vision alone should be able to take out Bucky. So Vision alone should be able to take out the Avengers. I don't understand how Bucky can just take down all of the Avengers. Neither here nor there. And I think that was why it was important to make Vision on the side of pro-registration and the idea of restraint and only going where he's told. Because otherwise, yeah, Vision is basically near godlike. And especially with the way Wanda's powers will inevitably develop, they're a very powerful super couple that would be very scary if left unchecked. And on the subject of powerful super couples, after Steve pulls Bucky out of the water, they run off together, and we get the scene from Ant-Man, finally, and we get an expositional scene from Bucky about how there are multiple Winter Soldiers, and how this is going to be some kind of horrible threat, a horrible Winter Soldier army, and it comes to nothing. We actually almost completely bypassed mentioning it here, because it's such a footnote in the actual plot of the film, but... My issue is they make it seem like that's going to be the climactic battle. They make it seem like this is where the film is going. And I mean, obviously, the film had to end on a battle between Captain America and Iron Man. But for a while there, they're kind of treating it like there's going to be this, you know, huge battle at the end. And then we show up and they're all fucking dead. It's such a severe letdown and requires such a huge reversal of emotional investment in where we think the plot of the movie is going, that it really bugs me. I completely agree. It doesn't go anywhere. It wastes my time, and it throws away a kind of interesting idea from the comics. If you're going to have a Winter Soldier movie at any point, that would have been something to save. Guess not, though. However, something they decided not to save, and that it could not wait to get back into the Marvel Universe, comes yeah. swinging in now. Yeah, speaking of bugs, we get little P.D. Parker, finally, in the MCU. Spider-Man's involvement in the MCU is something people were clamoring for, like, since the beginning. I have to think I mentioned it before, but there was an Entertainment Weekly article back in 2012 after the Avengers where somebody was questioning, where are the X-Men? Where's Spider-Man? And it's like, we didn't have the fucking film rights, and it's your job to know that, but okay, sure. We finally wrestled them back, and now here we are. And... I think one of the things about this scene that is so strange and why I do describe it as kind of forcing it in here is because this is Tony's big plan, a teenager, yeah, a teenager that he doesn't even make sign the accords. Yeah, that's something that I've written in caps several times throughout this film. That's one of the many reasons that it's hard to take Tony's pro-registration stance seriously. I even looked it up to see if I was misremembering, but no, at the end of Spider-Man Homecoming, Tony offers peter the position as part of the avengers and mentions that he would have to sign the accords so up until that moment he's just financing an underage boy to be a superhero and yet he's super pro registration like what but at least it gives us marissa tomei as aunt may it does i actually didn't know that robert downey jr and marissa tomei used to date so i think it's super cool and super cute that they have such amazing on-screen chemistry there's also a really funny moment that I wrote down from Aunt May where she says to Peter, are you keeping secrets from me now? And it's really funny considering we only get one Spider-Man film of Aunt May not knowing Peter's secret. There are a few moments of weird, funny foreshadowing like that in this movie. Like earlier in the film, Black Panther mentions that death is not the end in his country. And we're going to find out in the movie Black Panther that's completely correct. I also kind of enjoy that Peter doesn't have the most reverence for Tony Stark. I mean, he's blown away that Tony Stark is in his room, but he is not above sassing Tony back. No, he's really not. And I love that. I also enjoy at one point Tony says to Peter from top to bottom, and I'm like, yes, currently you're speaking from top to bottom. Very true. So now from somebody who's new to this film to somebody who I just don't understand how they found room to shove him uh. in, Hawkeye comes back for no real good reason. Except I do love this scene. Hawkeye comes back to, like, get Wanda and save her, and Wanda's like, no, I cannot. And Vision's like, don't do this. And Hawkeye's like, nah, I gotta. And Vision's like, you will not defeat me. And Wanda's like, no, 
but I will. And she just like blasts him into the Earth's core. Yeah, it's the fact that Clint was immediately like, I knew I wouldn't be able to defeat you. I'm not here to stop you. I'm here to inspire her. And she blasts Vision to the Earth's core, which it is kind of nice to see Avengers doing damage to their own property for once. And it's really important to remind us that, yes, Wanda is as powerful as all of the things that they're saying since the beginning of the film. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, let's keep this transition boat rolling. Speaking of powerful women, we get our first hint of the Dora Milaje when Black Widow comes to T'Challa for aid. There's that moment where he's like, as amusing as it would be to see you guys fight, uh, let's not right now. This movie does start to go at a faster clip at different points. Like, you'd hope for a bit more smooth pacing, but there's really slow parts of this movie And there's really fast parts of this movie. And we're about to come up on one of the fastest. I mean, I think part of it is the story structure. The things they have to introduce, unfortunately, eat up a certain amount of time that can then be paid back through things we don't need to see as heavily focused on. But I do agree, once we get past the point of Bucky being triggered by Zemo and the EMP, the second half of this movie works at a very breakneck pace. Sharon shows back up. How you been? Yeah, I literally wrote down the timestamp and marked it as peak needless hetero visibility. You know, they're very pretty kissing each other, but like, I don't feel any sort of passion or fervent need for a kiss between these two characters any more than I feel one between Steve and Bucky or Steve and Sam. Like, not to trying to be forcing more gay in there, but you can't deny the fact that he has more character development and chemistry with those two characters than he ever has at any point with the character of Sharon Carter. And again, I love everything she does in this film. I love that she's the one who unmutes the security footage so Steve can hear the interrogation between Zemo and Bucky. I love that she brings them their gear so that they can fight. But the fact that the last time that we have seen Sharon Carter in this film franchise so far is her and Steve kissing, it leaves her off on an incredibly sour note for me. Her character was about so much more in the limited screen time we got. And speaking of limited screen time, this is where we get the introduction of Scott Lang and Ant-Man into this film, picking up from the threads that we got at the end of his film. Yeah, I think this is almost better use of him than his entire own film. Yeah, kind of. I loved his appearance here. I found it fun. I found it engaging. I found it helpful. As far as superhero cameos in other heroes' films go, this was a pretty cool moment. I saw a meme recently that pointed out the moment when... Scott turns to Wanda and says, I know you too, you're great. It's such a sweet, innocent, kind thing to insert for his character, especially when we have been told throughout this film that the world fears her, to have someone else point to her and say, you're awesome. Like, that was a really cool moment to give Scott Lang and to give Wanda. I do think it also helps set up the battle a little bit more because it gives us kind of like almost a reason he's a part of the team. He's so friendly and likes everyone so much. Yeah, that's really the one thing missing from his inclusion in this film. I don't get why Scott Lang would risk everything in his life to come help these people, other than Sam might have guilted him into it for stealing from the Avengers compound. But, like, we don't really get an explanation as to why Scott did this other than Captain America asked. It's also possible that it was him being like, yeah, go fuck with a Stark. Yeah, no, he has that line later in the movie. He says, Hank Pym said never trust a Stark, so... Maybe, maybe that, well, but then they didn't show up. I don't know. We'll probably get more into the psychosis of why Scott did what he did when we get back to Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. You know, I don't know how much I even can say about this fight other than there's a lot of cute moments, a lot of fun moments. There's the big one, obviously, and by the big one, I mean giant man. There's Spider-Man making the awkward Empire Strikes Back joke that doesn't quite land for me. Yeah, that always bugs me because we see in his movie that he builds a Lego Death Star. Like, he probably knows these movies, so I don't know if he's trying to, like, speak down to the adults assuming they haven't seen this cool kids movie or something. But it's weird that he calls it the Ice Planet and the walkie thingies. Like, I don't expect that Tony Stark knows what an AT-AT walker is, but... Uh, I don't know. It, it came across as weird to me and one of those moments that's very clearly an adult trying to write a teenager. And those are always really awkward. And speaking of awkward, I can't help but notice that Cap's team, who I think we're supposed to identify with a little bit more, Cap's team 
explodes cars by ripping them out of the parking deck, throws trucks, rips up planes, but the truth is Iron Man's team is just focused on stopping them and stopping the carnage. There's something sort of like Cap's team are fighting for their lives and Iron Man's team is fighting like they just want to apprehend their friends, which is a weird switch because Tony's been the aggressive dick the entire movie. So it, it's sort of an interesting point in the, in the film. Yeah, I definitely noticed it too. This was one of the scenes where I wrote down, like, Steve throws Peter. And I understand Steve is not aware that Peter is a 15-year-old boy. But even so, that's really hard to come at. Like, he has to be able to tell. If he was calling Wanda a kid, he has to at least be able to tell that this Spider-Man guy must be very young based on size, based on all the things that he's saying. And Steve, like, fucking throws him to the ground way too hard. But then again, I think that goes to both sides. There's this moment where there's like that giant explosion and Vision says, you know, it's as I said, catastrophe. But like, dude, seconds from now, you're about to cripple Rhodey because you were being careless. So it's it's one of those things where I'm not really sure where everyone falls on which side of which arguments in this movie. I think there's plenty of blame to go around, and I don't think everyone is willing to admit to their share of it. And I think that's more than anything why the Avengers fell apart. It's because none of you are willing to admit how dangerous you are, including those of you who are pro-registration. Yeah, I think there's actually like three really big hero-on-hero moments here. Natasha stops the Black Panther from getting his hands on Bucky, where she just over and over again zaps him. There's when Cap puts Spider-Man down and is like, I'm from Brooklyn. And it's, you know, a cute moment. And I kind of like that Queens, you know, the the whole that whole thing is a special cute moment. And I think the other moment that really matters is when Vision sends a blast at Tony's command after Sam and it ultimately hits Rhodey. It's important to note that Sam immediately goes to save Rhodey as well, that it's a race between Tony and Sam to get to James. And he's contrite when all he did was move out of the way of Vision's blast. And then Tony fucking blasts Falcon, which I think we're supposed to laugh at that. But that's another one of those things where I'm like, why are we laughing at that? That actually could have severely damaged Sam Wilson. And this is frankly not Sam's fault. If anything, I'm wondering how much precision Vision had in the first place. How much damage would he have done to Sam instead of Rhodey? And then would any of them cared? Because Sam is not covered in full body armor head to toe. Sam would really have gotten injured. So I do think that part of the argument is pretty thin and pretty weak. I also have to say, as someone who was excited going into this film, this was one where a major moment was unfortunately spoiled by toys for us. The Lego Captain America Civil War toys unfortunately spoiled the fact that we were going to be seeing the debut of Giant Man in this film. So that really took the wind out of those sails. I mean, it sort of had to appear here if it didn't appear in the first Ant-Man film, but, you know, would have been nice to see a surprise like that. All in all, this battle that the film is titled for that we've been building up to is about 15 minutes of the film's runtime. That's you know, less than the climactic battle of Ultron, but I think we're going to make up for that with how long Tony Stark's Oedipus battle, as I keep calling it, is going to be toward the end of the film. Yeah, from here, the movie goes to a lot of talking. Bucky has the line that he's not worth it, and I agree, but Steve doesn't, and I guess that's what matters. And we get a lot of interrogating the heroes that are captured. Everyone's captured, but Steve and Bucky. And Sam ultimately is like, Yeah, I I know where they are, Uh, if you want to go save the day. I have to assume Sam does this out of guilt over what happened to Rhodey, and a sense of needing to make up for it somehow. I agree, and I think Tony showing himself to want to help Steve, and going into the battle with that mindset, definitely helped put him on Sam's side. Hawkeye in this scene at the raft is like bizarre his rant about the futurist like he sounds fucking drunk and i understand you're pissed clint but nobody forced you out of retirement i'm sure they asked you nicely and you showed up and disappointed your kids because you wanted to the only reason your dumbass is in jail right now is your own fault i have to say though a lot about this scene it it took me out of it in an unfortunate way 
because while we are told that Stephen Bucky immediately head off toward the facility in Russia, Tony has to go back to New York with Rhodey, spend some amount of time berating Black Widow before she runs off into the night, has to travel to the raft, which is so ostentatious and over the top, so he has to wait for that thing to surface, then board, then talk down to all of his friends, then take off, then catch up to Steve and Bucky in Russia. And he's only like five minutes behind them. I guess you could argue that he can move faster in the Iron Man suit than they can move in a Quinjet. And I totally get that, but he has to be hours behind them, though. It's not the worst, most glaring flaw, but he spends a little bit too much time walking around doing other stuff before catching up right behind them. And it all happens so quickly. It just kind of goes into this big, maddening fight very suddenly, and Baron Zemo's at the heart of it all, being very, ha ha ha, look what I did. I feel really let down by how it all comes together at the end. I think Tony comes across like a petulant child. Bucky continues to have no personality. Steve is doing the best he can in a movie that he is a plot device in. The only real hero at the end of this movie is T'Challa. Oh, it's so T'Challa. I actually had forgotten until we went into watching this movie again. You know, I really don't care for a lot of T'Challa's behavior early in the film, how fervently he goes after Bucky, even though it seems that someone who is a very well-respected hero doesn't believe the person was capable of committing the crime. Yet at the same time, there's moments like Bucky tries to say to T'Challa, I didn't kill your father, and his response is, why did you run? I was like, huh, that's actually a very reasonable response to Bucky saying that. And then the way that he refuses to give in to the quest for vengeance and instead saves Zemo from killing himself so that he can be brought to justice instead. T'Challa really comes a long way in this one film alone. Further than some of the heroes that we've been watching for the last 12 movies, to be honest. Yeah, because Tony really comes off reductive and very childlike. Tony is constantly like, he killed my mom! And it's what the fuck? If they were trying to show us that inappropriate flashback in front of the entire MIT graduating class at the beginning of the film to make us feel like Tony cares about his mom, they really failed at that. Because all we see is Tony being petulant and bitchy in his actual memories. The only time that we see any sort of tenderness between Tony and Maria is part of the fabricated memory, where she says in a meta moment between the two of them that she and his father are about to die. Other than that, Tony's kind of an asshole to his mom. So, like, maybe the characterization is supposed to be he feels guilty for not being better to his parents, but at a certain point, buddy, grow up. I got lots of issues with my parents, too but I'm not attacking people over it. I would be able to recognize that someone who was tortured and brainwashed by an evil Nazi syndicate over the last century maybe isn't fully in control of his own faculties. This just makes Tony Stark look really, really, really horrible, and it's a huge backpedal from the development that he had gone through in his own trilogy and the two Avengers films we've seen so far. The only time it seems like Tony even really cares about his dad, for that matter, is when he's like, that shield doesn't belong to you, because it's like he wants his dad's property back. But really, there's no emotional connection here between Tony and his parents other than his they're his parents. And I get that that should be connection enough, but it doesn't necessarily give me enough for Tony to want to commit murder as an agent of the U.S. government wearing a super weapon. His parents died over a quarter of a century ago, and I'm not saying that you ever get over orphan syndrome, but all of this flaring up all of a sudden out of nowhere, because you're right, that's the only time he seems to have any affection for his father. We saw him cavalierly using a prototype of the Captain America shield to help build his super collider in Iron Man 2. He doesn't seem to care about any of those things. It just matters right now because Steve cares about someone else more than Tony. You know, even his battle tactics during this fight, he has Friday analyze Captain America's fighting pattern, and it takes about 10 seconds, and suddenly the Iron Suit knows exactly how to fight perfectly against him. And not only do I find it hard to believe that it would be able to analyze that quickly with so few blows, but I find it hard to believe that Tony wouldn't already have that on file for every single Avenger. That just feels like a Tony Stark thing to have. So... Even that moment, like, he could have just as easily said, bring up this thing I already have, but they chose to write it this way instead. 
everything about him feels out of character for this film. And it makes it hard to buy into what the film is selling. One of the only things I think actually isn't Tony's character is the ending, when he's being supportive of Rhodey and helping Rhodey get back on his feet, quite literally. Though, I still don't know if I think Steve's narration during that period makes sense with Steve from the entire film. It feels like classic Steve in a movie that was some other Steve. And frankly, he only had it because it's his film. I don't know who should have realistically had the final monologue to play out this movie. You know, you get the impression from that scene that Tony seems to regret his actions. But we know once we get to Avengers Infinity War that neither of them have done anything to try and bridge this rift. And they haven't spoken in what will amount to years. You know, I know the whole point of this movie was to disassemble the Avengers, but I don't love everything about the way it was done. Important note before we wrap up, obviously, is we get another very late Stamio in this movie with Stanley as the courier and his little Tony Stank comment. You know, again, the one time that I like Rhodey again in this movie is not until after he is nearly mortally injured. That sucks. I enjoy liking Rhodey. I don't know why he had to be characterized as such a dick for this one. The movie ends off with Cap's little monologue and Cap ultimately breaking, it would appear, everyone out except Scott Lang, who we find out in Ant-Man is just being a good guy and doing his time. I think we hear in either Ant-Man or Infinity War that he and Clint got the same deal. We just didn't see Clint in Infinity War, so we have no idea what's going on with him. And then we have the post credit scenes. You know, I remember even when I was watching Civil War at the time, and they pan around and we see that giant panther statue, and I was like, do you think they're gonna keep it that there's this giant panther statue staring into the lab? I don't think it's still there when we finally get to Black Panther, but I get what they were going for, where they were trying to intimate to us that we are in Wakanda and... That's what they were trying to set up. And then, of course, Peter. Yeah, I loved that scene. It was so cute. I like the way that it sets up Homecoming. It's a cute moment between him and Marissa Tomei. You know, it's funny. I didn't know until I was doing research for this film, but nobody knew Marissa Tomei was even going to be in this movie until literally the premiere. That's where people found out that she was playing Aunt May. That's amazing. So they did manage to keep one secret in the entire movie. One of the things I enjoy the most about these post-credit scenes is that we're finally getting back to post-credit scenes setting up individual films as opposed to solely being used to feed into the main narrative of the MCU as a whole. Most of the credit sequences for Phase 2 were about setting up Age of Ultron, and then ultimately a lot of people felt Age of Ultron fell flat. So it's nice to see the T'Challa scene setting up Black Panther instead and the Peter Parker scene setting up Spider-Man instead because this film franchise is quickly becoming about more than just the main narrative. We're seeing superheroes have their own stories again in a way that we haven't seen since Phase 1 and that's really cool. However, before we get to those movies... We have a movie that they didn't set up properly at all. Doctor Strange was the next film and really pretty, really interesting. But at the same time, there's things about Doctor Strange. Rachel McAdams serves no real purpose. The whitewashing of so many non-necessarily white characters, the ancient one, sure. But this is a movie about like Asian mysticism and there's just about no Asian people in it. Yeah, and I'm gonna be frank right off the bat. I don't care for Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't care for him as an actor, and I don't care for him as a human being. I, I mean, we'll get more into it into, in that episode itself, but it's part of what I think kept us away from Doc Strange for a while. We weren't super stoked on this one, and unfortunately, if you missed it, you didn't miss much as far as the overall narrative, which in some ways is a bad thing, but I guess it's also a good thing. Like I just said, we have these standalone movies now. Yeah, and you know what? My biggest problem is just, I feel like this is at no point ever Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is a kind person. He's benevolent, and there's no point at which this Doctor Strange isn't a dick. Even after he's learned his lesson, he's always a dick. He's never warm. He's never this 
powerful master of the mystic arts. He's just a dick. And it makes you wonder, were they trying to have this character emulate Tony Stark, hoping to replace that figure in the Avengers and the MCU? But if that's what they were trying to do with Doc Strange, no, bad idea. He is nowhere near as lovable through his sarcasm and venom. Well, until the all-seeing eye of Agamotto shines its light on us and we get a chance to look back at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. I'm actually going to be posting an image that shows the episodes that Joe and Anthony Russo directed of Arrested Development Community and Happy Endings at some point if you want to you know, see their credits there a little bit more detailed and see which of your favorite episodes they might have directed. As always, you can check out both Kevo and Mai's work on our awesome, hyper-inclusive superhero comic, Kid Riot, available at kidriotcomics.com. You can also check us out on X's for Podcast, our X-Men podcast here on Cage Club. You can also hear me on Now and Again with my best friend, Chris, where we take a look at the Now That's What I Call Musics in order. Don't forget to check out the other amazing shows here on Cage Club. And if you want to find out more about me, you can check out my Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. Well, until we're back, we'll catch you later. And don't forget, there's always money in the banana stand.